Where does Jim Harbaugh rank on this year's coaching power ratings? That and it's it's time for Michigan fans to get off our moral high horse. We'll get into that and more on this edition of Michigan Podcast next. But there's going to be one team that's going to play solely as a team. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team, the team, the team. <laughs> Looks deep for Anthony Clark. Waits for it. Nip This is no time for that. In the pocket and a sack. Tim Jamison. Brady gets terrific. Throws it. Get it. Touchdown night again. Schultz just before Brazil got him. And the leaping interception by Woodson. Harbaugh back to throw over the middle. Caught by Collinger at the five on his feet. Touchdown, Michigan. On his way. It's good. He's 5'7", 179 pounds, a junior at Michigan. But Jamie Morris packs a wallop, and he delivers for Bo Schimbecker. And here's your first play. Pressure coming. Second. It is Glenn Steele, number 81, who fought his way through the traffic. Option. And Robinson calls his own number, and he's going to score. Oh, an easy touchdown for Robinson and Michigan. championship again because we're going to play as a team and when we play as a team and the old season is over you and I know it's going to be Michigan again Michigan. I'm Steve Dace. Welcome to this episode, our current new episode of Michigan Podcast. Hope you're having a great summer. Coming up in the next segment of the program, our good friend Mark Rogers, voice of college football, also has a fantastic YouTube channel. He'll be joining us for the 10-Minute War, and we'll take a look at my 2021, keep wanting to skip a year, tells you how much I'm excited about this coming season, Um, our 2021 coaching power ratings for the upcoming college football season. Where does Jim Harbaugh rank? Where does the rest of big-time college football's coaches rank? We'll get into that here in just a few minutes. But I want to begin with a request, maybe even so much as a plea to my fellow cotton-picking maize and blue hearts, as the great late Bob Buford used to say. Every fan base has its bromides, its tropes, its laments, right? The curse of the Bambino for the Red Sox, the curse of the Goat for the Cubs. There's the curse of Bobby Lane for the Lions. There's commitment to excellence, just win baby for the Raiders. I mean, every every fan base in sports has, and and this is included in college sports as well, has a trope, you know, an urban legend that the fan base believes to such a degree 
that it's just kind of accepted as fact within your own bubble, whether it's factual or not. For we as Michigan fans, we have this notion that everybody else cheats. Well, specifically all the schools to the south of us that beat us, although these days the schools to the north of us, east and west of us too are beating us. But uh, Every school to the south of us that routinely overachieves or outachieves us is doing so for some nefarious or reasons of skullduggery. They are cheating. And uh, we don't win championships around here anymore in football, at least not for the last 15 years and counting. We don't do that because we just, we believe in honoring the rules. Which is weird because they don't sell we obeyed NCAA rules gear at the M-Den. At least I've never bought a, didn't get investigated by the NCAA this month shirt. I've never bought one of those maybe you own a those who stay won't get investigated by the ncaa banner that's i've never heard of it but cool good for you Uh, this to me has been an excuse for a long time anyway and it's a separate conversation but i i frankly don't care i don't other than the tax ramifications i mean it's a violation of law and maybe you know if, if it's happening the irs should call but i don't care if dabo sweeney and ryan day are just literally pulling blank checks out of their wallets on campus, offering them to recruits or current players and saying, fill in the dollar amount. I don't, I don't care. And in no other, in no other human pursuit on this planet, is it considered to be immoral, wrong, unethical for people of wealth and privilege to provide for people with less of those things who also happen to be providing them a service, especially when the service entails at any point, I could get a brain injury or my spinal cord could snap. I mean, football's dangerous. One of the reasons we love it, that's breaking. Football dangerous. But I, I don't really understand why it matters if Jim Trestle got some guys, some cars, for risking a spinal injury playing football. Why why do I care? Why is that immoral? Who cares? That's David. Nobody freaking cares. The NCAA doesn't care about its rules anymore. But that's a separate topic. And it's not nearly as serious as the one that is going to prompt what I'm about to say. For decades now, we have learned the University of Michigan played host to a fiend and a predator, infamously given the nickname Dr. Anal. He molested, assaulted, scores untold amounts of student-athletes, in the hundreds perhaps, maybe more. We've yet to learn the full scope of this sordid escapade. This tragedy is still unfolding. I also believe it is way too early to assess blame. That really, unless you knew the coaches of that era, the administrators of that era, you were one of the victims. I don't really know why you have a serious take on this. Because we, at least not yet, in terms of accountability for this, because it hasn't been fully adjudicated. But here's something that has been fully adjudicated. 
here's something that we don't need to go back and interview everybody that played for Bo Schembechler or his family to find out what Bo knew and when did he know it. And keep in mind also, Dr. Anderson, he only he only did this to the football program for an unlimited amount of time. He actually served the entire athletic department. In fact, they had him doing these physicals to the local high school athletes too. But that process can play itself out. And then we'll make determinations after the victims are made whole. That should be the priority. We'll then make determinations of what kind of accountability ex post facto is or is not required. For now, though, here's what all of us who don't have these answers yet. Here's something we can have a strong take on, that we are in control of, that we do now have the answer for. It's time, my fellow Wolverines, to get off the freaking moral high horse. Who gives Aunt Petunia's hairy rear end that some Buckeye's got some tattoos, man? Or some recruit we lost to Georgia or Clemson may or may not have had their mom and dad's light bill paid or a new house where now they're no longer living in a demilitarized zone. Who cares? Who freaking cares when... We were home to a predator who ruined lives. Permanently scarred lives. Men who had this happen to them on campus and then couldn't go on and become, they were damaged. They weren't whole. They, they, they couldn't become the husbands and fathers that they had intended to be. And so that scarring got passed on to them. As someone who grew up with a father who was abused, was never made whole, and passed some of that and took some of that scarring out on me, I'm really sensitive to this. There should never, ever be again, and I mean ever, any more posts on any Michigan message board anywhere about bagmen, about the SEC, about... Um, they didn't, they didn't, the, the Cardale Jones tweet about, they didn't, I didn't go to Ohio state to play school. Who freaking cares? All that crap is trivial, shallow, and stupid by comparison to the human toll that was allowed, the havoc that was allowed to be wreaked on that campus, our campus for decades That's the stuff that matters. Not whether Cardale Jones got to take classes online at Ohio State or had to really show up for Philosophy 301. Who freaking cares? There aren't any excuses left. This hasn't been a valid excuse before Dr. Anderson. It certainly isn't now. 
A big thank you to our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Michigan podcast because you make these episodes possible with your support. And we get asked all the time, hey, we love what you guys do. How can we support you? Well, for just $5 a month, you can support us at patreon.com slash Michigan podcast. And hey, college basketball may be done, but now we're into the Major League Baseball handicapping. And we had an outstanding season in Major League Baseball last year. We had a pretty good season in college basketball this year as well, as you can see right there from something we recently posted on our Patreon page. So five dollars a month to get some pretty good sports handicapping and opportunity to win some money like when we recommended you take before the tournament Baylor six to one to win the national championship you saw that thing pay off right well your five dollars a month pays off when you support us at patreon.com slash Michigan podcast Another edition of the 10-Year War here on this latest edition of Michigan Podcast and a great time to unveil our 2021 annual coaching power ratings for the upcoming season. And who better to do that with than our good friend and one and only Reasonable Bucknut. Good to see you, Mark Rogers. How are you, brother? Doing well, Steve. Uh, appreciate you being on here. I enjoy this conversation. I rank the coaches myself each year. It's a difficult task. I'll remind everybody out there that if they want to do it themselves, it is more difficult than it appears and easily criticized. Yes. The reason I do it is uh, it's not for talking points or anything. I do it because I'm trying to frame the uh, or provide the framework for my annual college football preview. And so the first two things I do every year are my team total talent ratings, which we have recently discussed here on the show. Uh, and then also my coaching power ratings, because that kind of gives me a starting point for how I go in now and begin to project out uh, the upcoming season. So you know me, Mark, before I do this, I have to have a framework. I think that's the fourth time I've used that word. That's how much I like it. I need a metric. I need a template. And I need guidelines. All right. I'm not just going to do this willy nilly and subjectively. I'm, I want some objective metric by which to measure things. So this is what I came up with several years ago to do my coaching power ratings. A coach can score a maximum of 31 points, all right, in, in this metric. So let me lay this out for you in the audience, Mark, and then get your take, okay? So the way these work are Power 5 head coach overall resume. That's the, the very first criteria. And each head coach in the Power 5, including Notre Dame, so that's 65 schools, gets a score of 1 to 10 based on each head, what each head coach has done strictly as a Power 5 head coach. That's just all that metric is. Next, we then look at their non-Power 5 head coaching overall resume. This is where we assess what each coach has done, either as a group of five head coach, uh, a Power 5 top assistant, an NFL head coach, assistant, etc. And we rate that on a scale of 1 to 5 so that it is not rated higher or it's weighed and measured uh, as much as what they've actually done as a head coach in the Power 5 level, which is the most important thing of them all. Our next criteria is what we call the current coaching trajectory. 
This is where we assess, we're assessing whether the needle for the next four years or a full recruiting cycle is pointing up or down at this stage of each coach's career. We rate that on a scale of 1 to 10. The reason why this is given such heavy weighting is to determine how uh, we're going to decide ties because a lot of these coaches end up with the exact same score. And so we thought this would be an appropriate tiebreaker whose career is on the ascent and then whose career is on the decline. And then we have a big game bonus. This is where you get points between one and three. And this is for coaches that are known for producing in big games as a head coach at the power five level. And a three is the maximum amount of points that you can be given. And then finally, we have what I call the Hall of Fame bonus. Coaches that are obviously destined for the College Football Hall of Fame, that's for college coaching only, based on their accomplishments up until this point, meaning they did nothing more in the upcoming season, their resume as it stands right now would have them in the College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, and I think you have to have a minimum of a 60% career winning percentage to even be considered for that. You would automatically get three points for a Hall of Fame bonus. So your thoughts on the metric that we came up with a few years ago to determine this, Mark? Yeah, so let's start with the model. And I will start with what you just uh notated there the hall of fame so i'm not understanding why that needs to be a category just because isn't that redundant and basically a reflection of all the other categories put together and there's certainly a status of hall of famers there are levels to hall of fames when nick saban reaches the hall of fame that will be that will supersede just a ton of guys that won 65 percent of their games and went to bowl games most of the time so i'm, I'm just thinking that maybe the hall of fame metric is a bit redundant that's an excellent question and you're right when it comes to nick saban it is redundant but this is what we do with the coaches like mac brown who just came out of retirement kirk ferentz who's kind of been on the throes or edge of retirement for several years now what do we do with those coaches who given their age we have no idea that they'll make it through another uh, whole recruiting cycle right and so right now if you had a choice would you rather have uh, you know, uh, pick a guy that had a, a breakthrough season last year that that wasn't already a hot commodity. So Matt Campbell is out. All right. So so, you know, pick another name along those lines. Would you rather have that guy coaching your team right now or Mac Brown or Kirk Ferentz? Chances are your answer would be Mac Brown or Kirk Ferentz. But if I didn't include the Hall of Fame bonus, that guy may end up, because of what his next four-year trajectory looks like, may end up higher on this list than them when none of us would agree that he should. So to me, this was a way to do a check and balance on overemphasizing the next four-year trajectory. That's why I did it that way. Okay. That makes sense to a certain extent. I don't completely agree with it, but it, it, it makes a, a, a bit more sense. Now, when I'm looking at the Power 5 resumes, it seems as though you're leaning toward longevity and uh, more so than, than the quality of performance. So I'm looking at Kyle Whittingham. I'm looking at Kirk Ferentz. I'm looking at uh, Dan Mullen in, a di in comparison to, let's say, Lincoln Riley or Ryan Day, who are exceptional at what they do and have either taken over great programs basically and maintained or upgraded the status of those programs. So they've been given lower uh, ratings than the aforementioned guys who are consistent winners, but have been there for a long time and don't really factor into championship play. Any system will have its own biases, right? I, I say in another line of work, 
Um, no models are objective. They begin with the assumptions of the modeler. The math that is used to work those assumptions out is objective, but the assumptions themselves are not. I begin, my bias begins under the assumption of proven track record. Why? Because, again, I want to put, I'm, I'm doing a, a forecast for a season and. I want to eliminate the most variables as possible to come up with the most accurate forecast as I can. Now, there will be outliers. You mentioned Ryan Day. So, I mean, he's jumped like 30 spots or something in our coaching rankings in the last two years. And and so that'll iron itself out because he still is ranked in the top 20. And then when you factor in the talent advantage he has over his opponents, when I combine this with a team total talent rating, that stuff irons itself out at the end. Um, I, so I, I, I'm not really so much concerned about it. There's more of a concern underrating Ryan Day after year one than there is after, after years two and three because, again, those things just tend to iron themselves out as this metric plays itself out uh, in, in ensuing seasons. And for as much as I'm picking this apart, I understand the difficulty because, again, there's a legacy component versus mm -hmm. a who do you want coaching your team right now. Right. And we don't necessarily have a classic example of it, but I'll take us back 10 to 15 years and say if Bobby Bowden and Joe Paterno were still coaching, but they were on their last leg, there would be this, well, the all-time great factor versus do you want them coaching your program to win championships right now? Not mm -hmm. necessarily. So, so that is difficult. Uh, when you've got, uh, you, so you're putting more weight, let's say, on the Power Five experience versus the Group of Five. So if you take Jim Harbaugh, his previous success in Power Five play was at Stanford 10 years ago versus Scott Frost coming off the successes that he had at UCF, but that's minimized in your model because that was on the Group of Five scale. Correct. And Jim's, uh, Jim's success, though, in the NFL is factored into that, too. Keep that in mind. All right, so if you, look at that, if you look at that criteria, the reason that Jim's rated higher than Scott Frost with that criteria is because to this very day, amongst guys that have coached at least four years in the NFL, he's in the top five in all-time win percentage of the National Football League. So that gets factored in to that metric as well. Let's, should we look at show the folks the, some of the list? Let's go through these names. Sure, Do you mind? let's go to it. All right, we're, we'll go through these 10 at a time. These are, going into this season, my top 10 coaches, and you can see where they factor in on the criteria there. Dabo Sweeney comes out ahead of Nick Saban, but it's strictly because I just think he's going to, it's more likely he's coaching another four years, right? I mean, that, so that's your tiebreaker. In every other metric, Nick Saban eclipses him, uh, but I think just because of the, when you, when, when you get to the tiebreaker of trajectory for the next four years, I just think it's more, like, like, more likely given age, Dabo Sweeney is still doing this four years from now, than Nick Saban is. But they, they come in tied. That's the only reason Dabo is rated ahead. And then you can see that there's a clear line of demarcation because when we're talking a four-point separation with only 31 points possible, that's actually a fairly substantial margin. And you can see things are pretty much bunched up from there. I mean, like you're bringing up the complaint that I have Ryan Day underrated. He's eighth, man, eighth. Okay, a guy that's heading into his fourth season from a program he just inherited that was already going 100 miles an hour in the slow lane. I, I don't know. I kind of feel like Ryan Day is treated pretty fairly in this model, but what do you think? Well, I took a hit for rating him second in the Big Ten to Pat Fitzgerald, so you've got him rated ahead of Pat Fitzgerald on that scale because the other just component that's 
impossible to determine down to a T is just the, the different conditions that each coach works under and the, the, the different levels of talent to compare uh, a coach at Northwestern versus a coach at Ohio right. state right. and the resources, facilities, and talent is very difficult. Uh, I'm intrigued by the big game uh, component there as well, because what a big game is at Iowa versus what that is at Ohio state in the same conference is completely different, uh, at least in my eyes or in the way that the programs are run and the expectations, because you've got Ryan Day. I'm going to go to my guy again here. Ryan Day's got a one in the big game category, and he's winning Big Ten championships. He's undefeated in conference play, but I guess those are givens. Penn State, to some extent. Michigan, those, yeah. those wins those are Those are just givens now, yeah. yeah. He's, he's winning conference championship games against Northwestern and Wisconsin, and he's playing well in the college football playoff aside from a blowout loss to Alabama. Yeah. Versus Iowa. Yes. Yeah. Ferentz, uh, he's he's basically his big games every year now are Wisconsin and Minnesota. Yeah. Northwestern or trying Iowa to State. win a division championship. Yeah. yeah. But we, we again, I've got Ryan Day rated ahead of Kirk Ferentz. I've got a guy with three years of, of power five coaching experience ever. The number eight coach in the country. I, I kind of feel like this metric works out pretty good. I mean, you're, if, if we do, if I do what you're asking me to do, he jumps to like sixth, so like two spots. I mean, I think that that that's that's a variance I can live with for a successful model. Uh, you know, so to me, I think if Ryan Day was 14th or 15th, then I think we'd have a stronger conversation. Uh, and if you look at Matt Campbell, for example, you're talking about a program at Iowa State that hadn't even finished in the top 25 since 2000. Prior to that, it hadn't finished in the top 25 since 1978. Um, it, it had only won nine games in a season, in a regular season, not counting a bowl game, something like twice in all of school history. But a lot of his score is is, is he has a Lincoln-Riley, Kirby Smart kind of next four-year, Ryan Day kind of next four-year trajectory because of his age. So whether it's staying at Iowa State or – taking over uh, a Michigan or Penn State in the future or going to the NFL. There's a lot of jobs you'd like right now in America. A Matt Campbell agent would be, uh, Mark, one of them, if you know what I'm saying. That, there's a high ceiling, good growth potential in that industry in the next few years. Oh, I'm picking it apart. I'm being nitpicky. I like the model. I think it's good. I, I have a few small exceptions to it, but I think it's really good. Uh, I will say, or maybe ask this question, in the trajectory category, I'm guessing that intangibles kind of come into that. That's where you get to interject uh, a little bit of a uh, uh, just just a look in, at context of the program. So I'll bring up Dan Mullen, for example. What Dan Mullen, he had the most uneven season of any college coach in my thinking last season, because if you would have said, okay, he beats Georgia, he wins the East, he plays Alabama more competitive than anyone. Great season for Dan Mullen. But they went like eight and four but, or something. Yeah. But he acted, and he acted like a knucklehead uh, in so many <laughs> different ways. Uh, the bowl game debacle, the LSU game debacle, the, the Missouri incites a bit of a scuffle there at midfield. He complains about Texas A&M. Um, and, and too much crowd noise after a loss there with 22,000 people in the stands. He just had a lot of misgivings. So I'm guessing that that allows you, the trajectory component allows you to kind of weigh in some of those judgment calls. Yes, it's the most subjective of all the criteria um, by far, which is also why it is the tiebreaker. 
criteria because that's at some point something's got to settle the tie. And since I'm putting my name on it and, and, and therefore I'm the one that will get the blowback for it if it's wrong, that's something will be me. Let's get to the, the next 10 coaches on this list. All right, so there's the aforementioned Dan Mullen at 11, Kirk Ferentz, uh, Gary Patterson, Pat Fitzgerald, Mario Cristobal has made a huge leap, but you can see his score is the same as Paul Christ, Mike Gundy, Ed Orgeron, David Shaw, because again, you know, Mario Cristobal has, uh, was not great at Florida International. Uh, he's won the last two Pac-12 champions. He's got the Pac-12 favorite this year. So whether it's continuing on with all those resources at Oregon or taking over for Nick Saban at Alabama where he used to coach or a job like that, similar to Matt Campbell, it would be good to be in the Mario Cristobal business right now. Are there any big objections you have to those next 10 names? I don't. I do have a question. Do you get to the conclusion of this process and see somebody listed over somebody else and think, I know this is the way the numbers played out, but I would not take that coach over that coach. Therefore, I'm going to tweak the numbers. It has to be really extreme. I did it my first year um, because some things just didn't make sense. And that's when I decided I realized that one of the things that didn't make sense is when we had, when you had a coach coming out of retirement like a Mac Brown, um, I needed to account for that, okay? And so that's where the Hall of Fame bonus was added in in the last couple of years of doing this in order to account for the fact that a Brett Bielema is walking in here with a resume. You know, we may not think the Illinois job's any better than it was a year ago at this time, but in terms of the caliber of resume that Brett Bielema is going to war with in Champaign compared, as a college coach compared to Lovey Smith, it's just not even comparable. So we have to account for that to some degree. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, but Absolutely. that's a great question. It is. All right, the next 10 names. Now we're kind of getting into the middle tier of, of college football coaches. There is... Uh, the name I just dropped. Brett Bielema shows up at number 21 on this list, although his score is essentially tied with Jim Harbaugh and Chip Kelly. I didn't intend this. CBS's uh, coaches' ratings that they do every year had Harbaugh 23rd. He's 22nd in mine. I didn't intend for that to occur. It just worked out that way. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian, uh, the, the guys in italics are new coaches at that school. So Steve Sarkeesian at Texas comes in, tied for 24th with Herm Edwards, who by the time we kick off the season, I mean, I have a job, the way things are looking right now. Uh, and then also on this list, we've got the two Mississippi State or State of Mississippi coaches, uh, Tom Allen, who's one of the biggest jumpers uh, from last year's ratings. Solid, steady, not spectacular, Mark Stewart. And then PJ Fleck at Minnesota. The dichotomy is just fascinating to me concerning certain coaches like Jim Harbaugh. But I'll, I'll since we talk about him all the time, I'll go to Chip Kelly because here's a guy who took a program and brought it to the elite of college football. Mm -hmm. But that was ten years ago. So what do you do with that guy? Right. Uh, you've got a metric to to play it out and weigh the positive versus the negative, the the past successes versus the current failures. But most people just rank, and um, and so I like the way you attack it. But uh, Chip Kelly fascinates me because there here's a guy that won ninety some percent of his game conference. Uh, at another stop, and then 10 years later, he's failing currently at UCLA. So what do you do with a guy like that? And if I was CBS Sports, I would need to come up with this metric because I've got Tom Fernelli. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I've got uh, Barrett Salee, Dennis Dodd. I've got seven or eight 
accomplished college football writers. Just have them give me their opinion. Do it like a top 25 scale, right? 1.65 points for first place, 64 for second place. And voila, here's the consensus of guys who do this fairly respectably at a high level. I'm just one guy. And nobody gives a crap what I think. So I had to come up with an objective metric. <laughs> All right. All right. The next 10 names on our list of our co- college football coaching power ratings. Brocko Mendenhall at Virginia at 31. Chris Kleiman at Kansas State. Clay Helton at USC. Greg Schiano and Rutgers. They're all tied there at 14 points. Um, but M- Mendenhall with coaching trajectory gets the tiebreaker. Narduzzi at Pittsburgh. Clawson at Wake Forest, which I am surprised. He's the coach the last couple of years. If I was going to put my thumb on the scale, as you just asked me, he'd be higher because of what he's been able to do consistently at Wake Forest, including after losing Mike Elko, a celebrated defensive coordinator. They haven't really skipped a beat there. Uh, But for whatever reason, my metric kind of always just has him fairly ensconced right in the middle. Manny Diaz, Jimmy Lake going into his second year at Washington. Ditto for Mike Norvell at at Florida State. And then Dave Doran uh, has jumped about uh, 15 to 20 spots at NC State after the surprising season they had last year. Your thoughts, Mark? In the span of just a couple spots, you've got exactly what we're talking about in regards to what makes this so difficult with Clay Helton at USC underachieving. But if you really look at the numbers, he's holding steady. He's getting by. Yeah. He's got like a 75% winning percentage in the Here's Pac-12, a good way to answer this, this question. Look at So he's, what, 33rd on the list, right? I think, right? Yeah. Let's look at the previous 32 names. Would they have done any worse at USC than he has done? I would argue they all would I have done better. So. All right. That, yeah. But that's the way that you would or or like 28 or 29 of them clearly would have done better. Like we could argue Clay Helton should be 39th. We could argue he should be 29th, even though that's a top five job in college football. No one should ar- would argue that he should be ninth. Fair. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's razor thin once you get into this uh, middle to low tier. And yes, David Clawson being a few spots away from Clay Helton just speaks to the difficulty of the assignment. Right. If we if we polled college coaches, I think Dave Clawson would rank ahead of Clay Hilton in an anonymous poll of college coaches easily. So Clawson is my is my um, uh, is is my my red pill in the matrix. I, I for whatever reason he just underperforms in this metric on a consistent level, and that's a guy that I always look at and think I think he should be rated higher than what this comes up with. But if With all due respect to the great people of Winston-Salem, if the one school I consistently undervalue in my metric is Wake Forest, I'm going to go ahead and live with that variance, Mark. All right. It's a pretty quiet fan base. You're not going to hear too much of a stir out of them. Right. All right. Our next 10 coaches we're going to take a look at. This is a mixture of going to be now uh, guys that are unproven or guys that are in trouble. Uh, Scott Satterfield at Louisville, who looks like he's lost a lot of the momentum that he had. Neil Brown, who uh, had a a, a nice second season at West Virginia. David Cutcliffe, he would fit that mold of a guy that's clearly on the the downside. Jeff Halfley at Boston College took a big leap from where he was a year ago. Justin Wilcox, Eli Drinkwitz took a nice jump from where he was uh, heading into his first year. Dave Aranda, Jeff Brom at Purdue, who it looks like they've lost their momentum there. Jonathan Smith at Oregon State and then Carl Durrell at Colorado. 
So, yeah, if we're doing this a year ago, Scott Satterfield is coming off a bowl season, lifting a program from 2-10 and 10 to 8-5. and five. Mm-hmm. And here we are a year later, and 11 games means a whole lot in college football. So going 4-7 and seven drops him considerably. David Cutcliffe, that's an interesting case because he goes to Duke. Nothing's ever expected of Duke football. They win two or three games. He has a rough, rough time getting that thing going, but he finally does. And for about five or six years, yeah. they made an ACC championship game. He's winning seven and eight ball games a year. And now over the last four or five years, they're back on the downslide. But he's such a respected guy. He's a guy that if you would go out and talk to people in the industry, they just have the highest regard for David Cutcliffe. Let's look at the next tier on our list here. Um, we go next to Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech, Mike Loxley at Maryland, Brian Harson at Auburn debuts at 53, Sam Pittman at Arkansas, Scott Frost at 55. If I would have said when he was hired, he'd have been 55 hitting into year four. Everybody would thought I was nuts. So if I would have said Jim Harbaugh would have been 22nd heading into year six, everybody would have thought I was nuts. But here we are. Mel Tucker at Michigan State, two new coaches, Lance Leipold at Kansas, Josh Heupel at Tennessee, Nick Rolovich at Washington State, Jeff Collins at Georgia Tech. Let's go ahead and do the final five, Aaron, if we can. Just put them together. Dino Babers at Syracuse, who has a phenomenal agent, which can only explain why he is still employed. He must just have a Byzantine, draconian buyout. Jed Fish, the new hire at Arizona, who may end up being the most senior coach in Arizona here in the next few months. Matt Wells at Texas Tech, also coaching for his job. And then two new coaches, Clark Lee at Vanderbilt, Shane Beamer at South Carolina. What stands out to you there about the final 15 in our power rankings of coaches for this season? Mike Loxley inherited a pretty good roster at Maryland. He's recruited well. He's not won anywhere. You mentioned one of the worst uh, winning percentages in history, uh, going back to his previous job at New Mexico State, uh, doing a deplorable job on the field. The results at Maryland, he needs to win quickly. All right, final thing, Mark, we will let you go. Put you on the record. And maybe a year from now, we'll go back and replay this clip. All right, when we have the 2022 coaching power ratings. Which of those 65 coaches will make the biggest jump and biggest fall, do you think, in next year's coaches' power ratings? Oh, boy. Brett Bielema, based on, um, let, let's um, say that uh, I'm trying to recall where he was in the I think 50 he's 21 range. on the list. Oh, yeah. 21. You th- <laughs> so you think he's going to make the biggest fall? Once the reality uh, of coaching at Illinois sets in, is that what you're saying? I don't think he's going to have a, a much of a... Uh, he's at his ceiling now, boy. is what you're saying. Gotcha. I, yeah. I think it's going to be difficult for him to win at uh, Illinois. And who's Chip so- Kelly's the, the guy that uh, could rise or fall considerably. He, yeah. Either he's going to go off the chart because he's going to be gone, or uh, a lot of people believe in UCLA roster talent right now and what he's started to build, and then they looked much better despite their 3-4 and four record last year that maybe Chip Kelly uh, can contend for a division championship, maybe uh, surprise some people and do something at UCLA finally. That, those are good calls. All right. I lied. One more final question. Where is Jim Harbaugh on this list next year? Or is he even on it at all? What do you think? I believe Jim Harbaugh is going to retain his job. And I don't have a whole lot of confidence in saying that. But I think that 
this new reset extension new contract is going to give him another year uh, where 22 is the, the final call. So seven and five, eight and four is going to keep him around and probably drop him a bit uh, into the mid to low 20s. Man, I, I, I hope they don't need season ticket sales next year. If they're like seven and five or even eight and four and get molly whopped by Ohio State again, I, I hope they have alternative revenue streams at Michigan because now, now with the new Supreme Court ruling, you have to pay these guys for like going to class and everything else now. I hope they've got it revenue streams other than season tickets because those they're going to need to give away with a Coke Zero like they did at the Brady Hoke uh, end of his era, uh, if that is the case. Mark, good to see you as always, man. Thanks for joining us. All right, Steve. I always appreciate it. You bet. We'll be back here to wrap things up on this week's edition of Michigan Podcast next. Thanks, Mark. Have a good my, one. My bad on that last question. I just couldn't recall who was where on that list. No problem. I I I, I uh, cornered you. I kind of I shocked you with it. No, don't worry about it. I, I don't mind it. It's just uh, I didn't have a good recall of who was where. All right. Thanks, Steve. You got it, man. Thank you. Go to the top? Sure. All right, stand by. A big thank you to our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Michigan podcast because you make these episodes possible with your support. And we get asked all the time, hey, we love what you guys do. How can we support you? Well, for just $5 a month, you can support us at patreon.com slash Michigan podcast. And hey, college basketball may be done, but now we're into the Major League Baseball handicapping. And we had an outstanding season in Major League Baseball last year. We had a pretty good season in college basketball this year as well, as you can see right there from something we recently posted on our Patreon page. So five $5 a month to get some pretty good sports handicapping and opportunity to win some money like when we recommended you take before the tournament Baylor 6 to 1 to win the national championship you saw that thing pay off right well your $5 a month pays off when you support us at patreon.com/michiganpodcast this week's twitter poll results we asked you will michigan benefit from expanding the college football playoff 46% of you said yes <laughs> I, I wrestled with whether to put this answer in there, but I decided to do it just to measure where some people truly are. It, it ended up being the second place answer. 28.7% of you says, doesn't matter, I've already lost all hope. 25.1% <laughs> of you said, no, by the way, I've already also, I've already lost all hope. So if I could have voted, that's how I would have voted too. This brings us to this week's Feedback of the Week. This is from Don C. Why haven't you taken a definitive stance on the Dr. Anderson situation as it pertains to who should be held accountable and how? Don, that's a great question. I have a very simple answer. Because I don't know who should be held accountable and how. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I work in media full time. I understand the quick draw nature. And then we're all in a position to have a hot take on something we barely know a damn thing about. I've got this weird thing, though. I'm not always good at it. I'm not always perfect. And then when I do chime in, I'm hardly ever always right. 
But I do kind of like to think I might be able to take a position I can defend before I take said position. I don't know the answer, which is why if you've been following us on Michigan Podcast in the last couple of weeks, we've tweeted out videos from former victims like former Michigan running back great John Vaughn, as well as testimonials from people who had similar uh, physicals with Dr. Anderson that they did not feel were abnormal. They did not feel molested or abused. And they don't believe that Bo Schembechler or the former Michigan coaches in other sports or Don Canham, the former AD, fully understood the full brunt of what was going on there. I don't know what the truth is. I'm perfectly fine. Um, you know, we, we let Dr. Anderson pray, P-R-E-Y, pray on our student body for uh, three decades. I think we can take three weeks or three months to figure out who's really responsible for it, before we go ahead and decide, let's destroy somebody's legacy before we know for sure. And then you may find out that their legacy is worthy of being destroyed. But wouldn't you like to know, you know, we're in a hurry to do a lot of things in this country today. One of them isn't to know what the truth of a damn thing is. Why don't we try to find out novel concept? Let's try to find out what the truth is and then have a take. That's my big idea for this episode of Michigan Podcast. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, five-star review, whichever the case may be, on YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever, however you access us. Thank you very much for doing so. Please do those things. Share with everybody you know also that that loves them, uh, some maize and blue as well. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Michigan Podcast. Keep up to date on all things that we think about the Wolverines between episodes. Until the next time, I'm Steve Dace. Go Blue.